Hi everyone, and welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we explore the science of crime and the practical application of this science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Take advantage of the advanced video capabilities offered by Bosch to help reduce your shrink risk. Integrate video recordings with point-of-sale data for visual verification of transactions and exception reporting. Use video analytics for immediate notification of important AP-related events and leverage analytics metadata for fast forensic searches for evidence and to improve merchandising and operations. Learn more about extending your video system beyond simple surveillance in Zones 1 through 4 of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at boschsecurity.com. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast from the LPRC. Um, This is the latest in our weekly update series. I'm joined today uh, by Tony D'Onofrio and Tom Meehan, our producer, Diego Rodriguez, as well. We're going to take a quick trip around the world, um, and I'm going to start off. Unfortunately, here we are still affected by this uh, global pandemic from the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus and um, uh, we're seeing now these home tests are arriving, and uh, the big difference, and I guess evidently uh, the administration uh, didn't want to send out and then has now sent out uh, testing. And, the, and the, the mechanism behind that, of course, is that if any of us are feeling strongly feeling symptoms or we know that we've been exposed to somebody uh, in the last four or five days that um, does have uh, COVID, then we take the quick test. If we're positive, now we know, you know, stay home, triple mask, whatever it might be, uh, so we don't uh, infect somebody else. And so we're much more informed. People are not wandering around as much um, with the, you know, infected by COVID-19. So this is nice to get some testing. I know there's a lot more testing coming online, and this will make it easier. And some of these tests now, too, that can discriminate between a coronavirus and uh, influenza uh, or RSV and some of these other infections. So again, going forward, hopefully in time, that'll be one of the outcomes here is that uh, any of us, our children, our families, uh, and others that aren't feeling well can uh, get a quicker diagnosis as to what's going on so the right treatment can apply. And so maybe we slow the spread of these things much, much earlier and not have to deal with what we're dealing with still. you know, we still see uh, studies dealing with long COVID and the effects of the virus as it moves through our bloodstream and lands and affects certain parts of our brains, evidently, you know, the sense of smell and so on. But one thing that was interesting, and we talked about this very early on in the pandemic, the idea of these challenge studies um, and, and the, the challenge study being, of course, where uh, individuals uh, fully understand the upsides, but most importantly, the risk. It's consensual and informed, as we talked about, um, and hopefully can do no harm or research. And so you volunteer you to be challenged. You will be purposely exposed to whatever the pathogen is, in this case, COVID-19. It took a long time, uh, a lot of debate by ethicists, because normally in a challenge study, there are excellent uh, recovery drugs and physicians and uh, other healthcare professionals, clinicians standing by should somebody start to experience serious symptoms. So uh, but the but the idea is now challenging or exposing um, a sample and see what the results are. And in this case, the UK did uh, po- uh, execute a, a challenge study, a relatively small N of 34. Or sample size was 34 people, a young group, 18 to 30 years of age. Uh, it was the Imperial College of London and a private company that 
uh, planned and executed the research. Um, but some interesting things, they exposed them all in the same exact way to the exact same amount. And it was a relatively low dose um, of an earlier variant, of course, and um, of COVID-19, or in this case, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, uh, to see what would happen. Well, uh, one half of those exposed actually were infected. And so, of course, everybody was being tested and studied to see what symptoms, when the onset of those symptoms are and, and things like that. So it was interesting, though, that only half did get it, um, did become infected. Um, and so this is always like we do in our science. Why, why not? Why does somebody uh, attempt to harm another or why do they not, given all kinds of different circumstances? So um, that was particularly interested in it, interesting. And of those one half of the sample, in other words, you know, about 17, 18 people, uh, what happened with those that, that now are infected? Um, Many of those uh, did not exhibit any symptoms at all, but they just knew they were infected due to the testing. Um, the symptomatic, uh, one thing that was an interesting finding for them is those that did become symptomatic actually became symptomatic in less than two days after the exposure, whereas the field studies, which are observational by and large, um, certainly they're not randomized controlled trials, um, it's really was, it's five days is what's been observed and reported on average, but it turns out actually, if we're infected, at least in this very tiny sample, that's all it is, very tiny, but these things are, are you know, are informative types of uh, research studies, um, but we're actually are maybe symptomatic in, in fact, several days or three days earlier. So um, on average, uh, there was high uh, viral levels on average nine days after known infection um, and, uh, but up to 12 days, there were high viral levels. And I know one of our team members who had to take their child again to the hospital, um, in the emergency department and was full of people, COVID positive, uh, most masks, some not, um, and, and, uh, he ended up getting it and, uh, actually was, uh, testing positive for, again, a couple of weeks afterwards. So, and I know many of us have heard that and we've seen that in these research reports, but, uh, up to 12 days with this group. 70% of those, though, that became sy symptomatic, one of the symptoms were a loss of smell and or taste. Again, there must be some effects of our brain in that region. Um, now, again, trying to get an idea of how long does that last. There are a couple more studies out on long COVID, particularly those types of effects. In this case, um, because this study's over, the average was six months um, smell or taste deficit or or um, uh, wasn't existent uh, up to nine months so far, but there are a couple that look like they may still have that. So um, time will tell what happens there. Um, they're now planning on uh, future challenge studies uh, in the same way that they have done with influenza and now with uh, coronavirus. So this particular coronavirus, um, but the research continues because again, why were 50% that were exposed not infected um, was it prior coronavirus? In other words, the cold coronavirus exposure or uh, infection in the past? How far past? You know, was that did that uh, confer some sort of immunity? Um, our immune response was ready in that case. Uh, and or was it just the person has a very robust immune system that injected the virus before it could become uh, before they could become infected um, and, and start to become symptomatic? So more to come on that, but just interesting. Um, those of us that are researchers to see how they conduct the research, 
what their going in hypotheses are, you know, the, the methods that they use to study and evaluate and assess, and then how they um, study and analyze what they find and, and, and sort of tease out uh, inferences and implications for future research. So stay tuned on that. Um, you know, the next Delta, uh, next they're going to work on the Delta variant. So we know that's uh, has shown to be pretty serious for some people. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how they uh, orchestrate, instrument this type of research, challenge research in that, given that there could be a more severe outcome for some of the participants and subjects. So um, as far as vaccination now, um, the, the world is over 5 billion humans that have been vaccinated with the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, almost four and a half of those uh, have gotten at least two doses of the vaccine around the world. The United States, uh, almost 220 million Americans have been uh, vaccinated with the two dose or whatever the full regimen was at the time. So you can see a big part of the natural infection combined with um, over 200 plus and growing million Americans that have been vaccinated, fully vaccinated, as they say. Uh, what's gonna, what's that look like with these, given these variants that seem to be more transmissible, but the, uh, the observation right now is they're less virulent or serious. Um, again, you know, 75 preclinical other vaccine candidates coming down the road, trying to find ways to reduce the likelihood of infection, not just serious disease, um, and other ways uh, to take the vaccine. We've talked about in the past with patches, with nasal sprays, and pills and other um, modalities for taking the vaccine. Uh, 116 clinical vaccine candidates in human clinical trials, 51 in phase one, 50 in phase two, and 48 now in phase three with 10 uh, vaccines fully approved in the United States. We know Moderna um, and Pfizer fully approved here. So um, that's some of the uh, COVID-19 news. Um, we have our uh, LPRC kickoff conference. We talked about that. That was a, a great success in our opinion with 46 uh, people um, taking part in that personally and then others online. And uh, we were able to do a lot of dialogue, brainstorming and lay out some of the um, hypotheses we have about on the grand scale why uh, retail crime is seems to be dominating the news sources for months now. Um, in this combination of lower downside risk for the would-be offender consequences, so that erosion, that steady erosion of consequences um, in all its forms, less formal sanction risk for them and less informal sanction risk for them. In other words, less likely that they would be caught and sanctioned publicly in any way um, has continued to diminish as well as uh, the idea of any kind of shaming or informal sanctions, uh, in fact, um, a lot of them posting videos of themselves and uh, a lot of bragging and things like that. So when you have that much of a the downside risk for them, uh, their consequences continue to erode. Uh, people become bolder. We see on the other side, of course, again, more upside for, for them as well. And again, coming in two forms. One is the uh, increasingly easy, as we all know, to convert stolen counterfeit and altered goods, SCAG to cash online through all the platforms um, and sub-platforms and going through different legitimate sellers, uh, even though you're not um, or you are an illicit seller, but nobody's uh, got your information and knows that. Um, and then we see, too, what we just talked about on the, on the lower consequence side and that uh, more people are using it as a badge of honor to be blatant. But again, some of the outward signs when 
um, people come in to shoplift and no longer run, uh, they just slowly walk out. So um, we're seeing a lot of that and the, the effects that's having on good employees and good customers that are fearful, um, that are disgusted, um, and they have other opportunities for jobs. And so we see a huge boomerang effect as far as the harm goes. Um, so that's a big topic on that grand scale. Um, and again, with Dr. Corey Lowe on our team working on the ARCS project, which you're going to see that retail crime uh, uh, study. He's now close to 100,000 uh, different incidents reported by um, retailers. More retailers have started to join the effort and are going to be reporting in much greater detail what they're experiencing in all its forms um, so that we can collect a lot more data around what's happening, where it's happening, when it's happening, how it's happening, and things like that. And you see that progression in the public sector where we've gone from NCR um, reporting uh, to NIBRS. And the attempt on that level is to get each and every law enforcement agency more accurately and more completely and definitively reporting the crime that they're experiencing uh, and what they're doing about it uh, in an attempt to get a better handle on crime. Uh, so at the LPRC, that's what we're doing here in addition to the micro studies that we conduct. So stay tuned on more of that. We'll be talking a lot about that um, next week at our LPRC Ignite conference. We're excited. Um, right now, we've had um, around 30 of our leaders that are now able to come in. Um, Diego Rodriguez, who is leading the charge as far as the Ignite conference, putting together logistics and, and so forth, um, is now predicting that we could have between 40 and 55 uh, present as well as those that will be online. So we want all of our board of advisors, our LPRC Innovate, um, the advisory panel members, um, and then again, the number ones or twos um, from the vice presidents of asset protection and loss prevention and their um, number twos, if you will, um, that we will have three of our sessions will be on Teams and available for you all. So if you haven't gotten that, you'll be getting the agenda and the links to register to get in there and help us steer the LPRC. Um, and we've got a great lineup of events. You know, we've got uh, our chair, Scott Zider, welcoming everybody. We've got some new board of advisor members. We've got representatives from Australia, New Zealand, from Europe, um, Canada, as well as from the United States. And uh, just really, really excited. Some of these new retailers that are coming in, these, these uh, strong leaders that are participating in this. Um, we've got some of the nominations for some of the awards that they'll be giving out. Um, they're looking to add a couple more BOA members, board of advisor members, to represent new types of retailers that are joining us. We're having some of these that are online only or may have one or two showcase um, uh, stores. So uh, there's other things, some exciting developments there. We're going to go through operations, our strategy, um, and the things about operating the LPRC as an organization, uh, a lot around membership. And they call it smart growth, uh, the BOA, and they're talking about uh, what retailers, what solution partners and other industry partners make the most sense to get involved in the LPRC. We know that the ISCPO has aligned forces and uh, more announcements to come on some other organizations out there as we get stronger. Um, the LP Foundation, LP Magazine, D&D um, &D Daily and others are already involved, but there look to be some more cooperation in the making there coming up. We'll be going through some of the finance and, and resources. We want to continue to grow the team. Um, yesterday, we had another uh, strong young researcher uh, join us, Dr. Sarah McFan, 
uh, as a research scientist. We had uh, we have uh, Orion San Angelo who's joined us as a research analyst as well. Um, we've we had great calls with Esri planning our mapping uh, crime and mapping center of excellence yesterday. Um, some great other calls. Ricky is part of our LPRC tech team from uh, Access has in this week installing all kind of new technologies running ETH low voltage, Ethernet cables, and so on, and making the connections that we need as we go and blow through the 180 technology in the lab, technology solutions in the lab, as well as an array of solutions across the Safer Places lab, which is the ecosystem outside the building, full square block with four sub blocks there as well. Um, more going on with the science to practice. We're gonna be going through working groups, uh, the upcoming events, we're adding a SOC and sensor summit um, we have the seven working groups. Product protection, of course, has their own summit. The supply chain protection working group has their own summit and gathering. Um, the violent crime working group, the same, uh, which this year, by the way, will be, will be in Philadelphia. And uh, Sarah McFan, she'll be working with Basha and others as the leaders putting together that summit, as well as a year of amazing interaction and research in the violent crime reduction. They're working on active shooter markers or red flags. They're working on uh, armed robbery tracking. In fact, we're using a, a current case study I might have mentioned before um, down in South Florida where there's an active crew of armed robbers hitting stores has not been caught yet. So working with Esri and mapping it and doing some things there that will be featured as well. But we're adding also a summit for the innovation working group and that will be the SOC and sensor summit, the security operations center or command center concept that will be here in Gainesville at the labs. Um, and so we're excited for that. Look for the upcoming dates and the specific agendas there. Um, so uh, I could go on and on, but uh, I know better. And so I'm going to go ahead and turn it over, if I might, to Tony D'Onofrio. Tony, if you could take it away. Thank you very much, Reed. That great update on COVID. And also, I'm looking forward to Ignite uh, next week uh, and, can, and kicking off with the board uh, on the great work that's taking place. So this week, I'm going to do three, top, three updates as I usually do. Let me start first with a topic that I've been tracking in China for a long time, and that's uh, how we shop uh, through social media or through social commerce. And this is a survey done through Infographic Journal, and it looks at U.S. trends in terms of social commerce. And what it is, again, it's a process of by which when you're in a social media app, the ability to directly shop, and that's still emerging in the U.S., and as you'll see later, it's actually exploding in other parts of the world. So some of the questions that they asked are, have you ever discovered a product on social media and purchased it directly on the phone? And it's interesting that it's very high. 82% said yes, and 18% uh, uh, said no. 57% bought something while watching a live stream on a social media uh, app. 72% uh, rated live stream shopping a nine out of, or 10 out of 10. So they liked the engagement with through live streaming. 29% uh, buying something via social commerce at least once a week. 22% buy mostly apparel and 15% uh, buy beauty products. Those were the two largest categories. Uh, E-marketers forecasted that in 2021, U.S. social media commerce would rise by nearly 36% to 37 billion. And the number of shoppers using this channel would be 96 million by uh, 2022 this year. 
Uh, and despite this growth, uh, it's interesting, again, when you compare it to other parts of the world, USA social commerce is only about a tenth of the size as already it is in China, where social media shopping is already a $351 billion business in 2021. And live streaming is probably $150 billion. So those are two channels that I think are going to continue to come to the U.S. and with the Western world. Uh, total USA retail commerce currently forecast have it reaching 80 billion by 2025. I think it will be higher. So the ability to shop interactively while you're engaging with their audience is coming to a, a web or to a social media app near you. Let me switch next to another report that I tracked every year, which is where do retailers plan to expand globally? What countries do they go to when they're thinking of expanding global retailers? And uh, this report is from A.T. Uh, Kearney, uh, and it's called the Global Retail Development Index. And again, they summarize the countries that are prioritized for expansion by global retailers. The top five and the latest one for 2021 were China, India, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Bangladesh. Uh, what's interesting is the takeaways from the report, the key takeaways. First, inclusion markets in Latin America, the Middle East, and Africa. Fossil fuel development governments are increasingly turning to retail to diversify their economies and wean them away from oil dependency. Second, it is vital to remember that emerging nations can simultaneously occupy multiple positions in the window of opportunity chart. They actually have a great chart in the report that shows which countries are emerging, which countries are mature, and which countries are on the decline in terms of expansion for global retailers. And what they say, there's a significant difference between urban, for example, and rural China, so that uh, you cannot look at it as one country, you already got to look at it as multiple countries and actually do uh, various stages of development. Third, understanding consumer attitudes, situations, and dynamics is the basis of all uh, success in world consumer spending. And the gravity is slowly shifting away from the U.S. and develop European markets to Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. And again, if you look at uh, places like China, and even in some parts of India, advanced or modern retail is amazing what they've done, especially in China in terms of the link to technology to shopping. This process in terms of shifting away from the U.S. and, and Europe to the other parts of the world is not going to happen overnight, but that whereas the arc of commercial history seems to be bending for retail. Fourth, the pace of development is directly linked to innovation, penetration, and acceptance of consumers of retail technologies from simple phone connectivity, sophisticated and secure electronic payment system. I've always said in my presentation that the smartphone as a third megatrend has really opened up the world to shopping. If you got a good app and the ability to take payment, you can basically sell anywhere in the world to a smartphone. And smartphone penetration is growing like crazy around the world. And finally, from this report, the real lessons is that all things, especially markets, change. Often, as it was the case with COVID-19, with little or no warning. So there is no effective substitute for really understanding uh, where the markets are and where you need to expand and really being deep. So globalization of retail, I think it's going to continue because consumers 
law brand, and uh, there's a lot of uh, global retailers that are members of LPRC, so it's good to track which markets are going to go next and how we support them. And finally, this week, again, supporting a lot of the great work that's going on at the LPRC, let me talk about the latest research on artificial intelligence and how it's evolving in, in retail. And this is both artificial intelligence, machine learning, and this research was published in Chain Store Age. About two-thirds of retail respondents said AI and machine learning are technologies that are the most mission critical in their business strategy. This has led other technology areas such as cybersecurity, cloud computing, data science, and e-commerce to have lower percentages of their prioritizing AI above all those. Almost six in 10 uh, respondents in the retail space said AI and ML technology are a high priority for their industry. More than seven in 10 said AI has had a positive impact on revenue generation, also on expense reductions, while 69% reported that AI and ML have had a positive impact on brand awareness, and 67% said these technology have had a, a positive impact on brand reputation. Uh, three quarters of respondents in retail said they are employing AI and ML as part of their business strategies, IT or both, while 68% of retail respondents are allocating between six to 10% of their budget to these types of projects. Important to remember uh, from a loss prevention point of view that these projects are happening and you really need to be thinking how did you get your projects into that mix. So again, six to 10% of the budget is going to AI. And just to give you an idea how fast it's growing, this compares to a spend as a percentage of the budget of, of one to 10% in the last survey. So again, a much lower and to a much more accelerated. The survey reveals uh, uh, that these applications are being used across the board in terms of improving the speed of efficiencies of retail processes, personalized content and understanding customers, understanding marketing effectiveness, gaining competitive advantages, increasing revenue, and predicting performance. So, uh, so again, I would encourage everyone here, and, I, and in the actual summary that I published, I actually put more data from the survey. I would encourage all the listeners to get engaged with LPRC because AI and ML is an area where we're expanding focus and really there's some exciting things in loss prevention and how loss prevention helps the rest of the organization become more effective that you're gonna see in the future. And with that, let me turn it over to Tom. Well, thank you, Tony. Thank you, Reed. And uh, I'll start off with some COVID uh, news related to civil unrest. Uh, this is really uh, coming out of Canada. So there's uh, been a fair amount of trucker protests. So the Canadian government has mandated vaccines for truckers and there's been protests all over Canada. And actually um, the, there was a, a fairly large protest that blocked the largest international crossing uh, in from Michigan to the United States. So interestingly enough, the government is taking a very aggressive stance on this. They've actually seized fuel, made arrests. Um, there was talks, which is not typical in the Canadian market of some of these protests and protesters having firearms. So um, a lot of news and uh, it made an international news. It was really all over, uh, you know, um, at pretty much every major news uh, agency in the last 48 hours had put some pictures and the pictures are, you know, 
good media pictures because you see trucks um, blocking bridges and uh, truck drivers with signs. And this is all around the anti-vaccination effort um, that occurred. And then throughout um, the whole entire country, all over Canada, there were in downtown suburbs, um, truck drivers just uh, holding their air horns at full blast so that they were being just you know, causing disruption around the, the pace. Although there were reports of, of firearms in the news, there was no um, major reports of violence or destruction. This was really um, almost exclusively protests to disrupt traffic and noise to really you know, to send the message out. Again, the government has taken a strong stance that they're not going to tolerate it and that um, they seized fuel, or made some arrests. Um, it is unlawful to block tra traffic, so they were making arrests in that way, seized some trucks uh, that went through. But this continues to, to birth the question of what, if any, impact this would have on some of the other supply chain disruptions that we're faced with. The, to date, I'm not uh, sure that we see any evidence to support it well, but if this continues, there's a likelihood that this could create challenges. Certainly, it's creating traffic. Uh, and certainly it's creating challenges at international borders. There are some measures being taken from the Canadian government to try to limit that. But when you have tractor trailers, it's really tough um, to limit them from going across the bridge. So they, are, they have actually looked at rerouting and some other things. But to date, uh, they've really not had any success with the exception of seizing fuel and trucks. So we'll continue to monitor it. At this point, it is not you know, affecting the U.S. in any other way than the border crossings, but it just, you know, is the continuous reminder of the civil unrest and that, you know, even at what I would say further into COVID, this still happens throughout the world. Um, we do see it here in the U.S., but in much smaller uh, spurts. But uh, as we all know, civil dis disruption uh, in the retail space and it causes major challenges. So it's something that we'll continue to watch and talk about here. Additionally, there was civil unrest in major metropolitan um, cities throughout the United States. There's actually over a couple different um, shootings, but the Amir Laki is one. The, there's two or three instances involving police, including the police officer um, that was released early. Uh, Minnesota, Indianapolis, Chicago, um, San Francisco, Denver, um, looking at the list, it, it, you know, a lot of the metropolitan cities, not huge gatherings. Um, and while there were arrests, at least from what I'm monitoring, relatively um, peaceful protests, one of the things that I think, as we know, when we talk about uh, protests is the weather in the Midwest, um, I think actually helped keeping the size of some of these protests down. They had a significant snowstorm and the, the freezing temperatures. So these groups were between 100 and 1,000, but they were um, scattered throughout major metropolitan cities. Additionally, there were some protests um, throughout um, Dakota and Oklahoma around uh, Leonard Pelter. And Leonard Pelter was you know, incarcerated in 1975. He was arrested, uh, involved in a shooting at the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, which two FBI agents were killed in. There were several protests around the release of him. And while this is probably not front of mind for us because it is somewhat regionalized, um, those protests, uh, there were police officers injured and were, um, but I would say a, a little bit more problematic, you know, the, from a violent standpoint, relatively small groups, but 
in a short week, um, I was monitoring about 46 protests throughout domestically, not including outside the U.S. So talked to the importance and read and uh, spoke about the SOC, the importance of utilizing the LPRC um, and when the fusion net is active and really asking when you're seeing things, if, if the fusion net isn't active, going in and actually starting that, that conversation and banter. So when you think of over a weekend, almost 50 protests, you know, that's a lot of protests in all, almost all of them in major metropolitan cities um, and all of all different sizes, as little as 20 or 30 and as many as a thousand. Um, and I actually did not and do not generally monitor all of the other protests that I would say are going on. So there was several other protests that um, are somewhat consistent through whether it would be um, anti-government or certain markets where they're just a, a kind of a consistent uh, piece of it. So definitely something to keep our eyes on and, and stay abreast of together. Uh, another thing is in ransomware and cyber reaches, I thought it, you know we, we often talk about the risk of, of ransomware and cybersecurity threats and where I think today we're seeing a sway in the attack vector. Uh, retail continues to be a, a big attack vector for cybersecurity professionals, especially the more targeted approaches as well as public schools. So Al Albuquerque's public school system was a target of cyber uh, criminal and actually closed and canceled their classes for two days. So these are extremely disruptive events. Um, and we, we talk about all the basic things that we can do, but education and awareness is the key. We talk about not clicking, talk about not looking at emails, uh, you know, uh, images and emails. If you don't know what it is, don't click on it if you're not expecting it. And, uh, you know, a general rule of thumb is if you're not expecting something and it looks even remotely suspicious, if you have to question whether it's suspicious, it's usually reach out to the sender and find out if it's real. And then lastly, the FBI released a warning um, uh, a couple weeks back. It's actually about a week and a half back around QR codes and the risk that we have to QR codes, uh, the cybersecurity risk. And this is not a new warning. It's, a, it's more of a heightened warning. But today, uh, and this has been absolutely accelerated from uh, Corona and COVID, the the COVID, uh, QR codes are used just about everywhere from a contactless payment standpoint, but more importantly, from a menu in restaurant, they, you know, it's, it's not uncommon today to go into a restaurant and the QR code is the preferred method of the menu for the restaurant. It's cheaper, easier for them to update. Um, and in some places they just don't have paper or, or booklet menus. Well, when you scan that QR code with your phone, if you have a, a phone that's, you know, not you know seven newer than seven years old in most cases when you scan that with a picture it automatically prompts you to click on a link well here's where the challenge comes into play is when you're clicking on that link um it could in fact execute malicious code and potentially install malware malware or ransomware onto your device so when you are out and about uh, you know clicking qr code or um taking photos or looking on a qr code you have to be mindful of uh, what it is. So this is not to say that QR codes are bad and that it's th that you need to be very, very concerned, but there's a concern of in an environment where you wouldn't normally see a QR code. And here's my example. If you were out at a trade show or a retailer and you just saw a QR code randomly somewhere, that's an easy kind of phishing technique of um, someone that is a social engineer or a cybersecurity professional you know, if you think about it, we we are now ingrained and, and trained our behavior is to scan these codes to see what they are. There's information for us. 
So now we have to start to taking the realm of understanding what the security risk is. In addition to the malicious code risk, there is a privacy risk. So if you ever scanned a QR code and you got a prompt asking you to know your location, um, that's exactly what that QR code is asking for. So if it prompts you to know your location, uh, when you're looking at a menu, understand that it's taking data and, and identifying where you're using it from. Um, so there's some privacy challenges there. And then the last part of this warning, which you know further exasperates XBR, uh, QR codes, is that in some cases, personal and generated QR codes have personal information on them. And I, we talked about this on the podcast many, many uh, months ago about the you know the the risk of if you lose your your ticket, your airline ticket, that that barcode actually contains some personal information, name, uh, you know, first and last name, sometimes so date of birth, not, I think they've removed that at this point. Um, you know, your name's definitely going to be embedded in there. Your frequent fire number is definitely embedded in there. If you are using an application that generates a QR code for you, understand what information you are sharing with that QR code when you're doing it. There are a lot of apps out there that are designed to create QR codes for business cards. I use one myself. Popple, there are a whole bunch of different ones that are out there. Just understand what information that it's capturing and what you're sharing. So we'll continue to monitor it. I think as you know, Tony is always talking about the you know the, the digital acceleration. We're talking about it together in this group here. That does sometimes open the door uh, for criminals to take advantage of it. And we know that that you know that in the LPRC, that's the thing we're always talking about as technology advances and the good guys. Uh, or the green shopper figures out how to make it more efficient, the red shopper figures out how to take advantage of it. And with that, I will turn it back over to Reed. Thank you so much, Tom, for all that great information. Tony, amazing as well. Um, so many risks, so many threats out there. And um, Tony, you mentioned, of course, AI. And in fact, um, we have a meeting today at 10 a.m. Eastern with an embedded NVIDIA AI scientist at the University of Florida with our Hypergator um, 3.0 AI program. So um, we're excited to showcase and, and talk with um, this top scientist from NVIDIA around some of the AI opportunities. Um, so everybody stay safe out there. Um, stay touch with us, lpresearch.org or operations at lpresearch.org. We're always here. We always want to listen. We want to talk with you, um, get your suggestions and ideas. Stay safe out there. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast, presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council. 